0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Thrill of the Hill. My name is Alec Perry, and this is the Farm Advisory Service series where we discuss the hot topics impacting the farmed upland environment. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I'm joined by the National Farmers Union of Scotland member Ewan Walker-Monroe and we discuss beaver reintroductions and translocation the common goals of reversing nature decline in Scotland, but the real concerns farmers have and the powerlessness they can sometimes feel when trying to manage conflicts in conservation. Hello Ewan, good to speak to you again. How, how are you doing? Yeah, we're pretty good actually up here in Angus. Thanks Alec. Good, good, good to hear it. And welcome to Thrill of the Hill. This is your first
1: time on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me on. There's a a, a lot to discuss, plenty going on in the rural environment. So it's great to be able to to be on and and have a chance to chat. Ewan, for those listeners who maybe aren't familiar with yourself, can you just give us an
0: introduction and outline who it is that you are and what you do in terms of the farmed
1: environment? Sure. So I'm Ewan Walker-Monroe. We've got a suppose these be class a fairly sizable um, arable units, about 700 hectares just south of Forfa in Angus. Uh, we grow wheat, barley, oilseed rape, oats, uh, beans and peas. Um, personally, after a spell in the armed forces, I spent nearly 20 years in the aviation sector. Some of that was on the North Sea, helicopters and otherwise holiday charter flights. Um, from 2000 we ran the farm on a contract farming agreement and then from 2014 it came back in hand and we set up a joint venture uh, with a neighbouring farm pooling all of our machinery together to operate the the, the two farms. Um, I'm a member of various kind of um, uh, farming organisations but the only one where I've actually got a a, a post or, or an official position is um, in NFU Scotland. I sit uh, for East Central as the representative on the Environment and Land Use Committee. Um, on the farm itself, uh, we are, I was about to say, embarking. We're relatively far in, probably about four or five years in now to changing across to regenerative ag system. So all the sort of good principles about integrating livestock, cover crops, minimising soil disturbance, and that type of thing. However, um, I was going to say, you know, let's make no bones about it we are a production farm we produce food for the nation um we're proud of that and we think we're good at it too that's not to say there's never any room for improvement but part of that is 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 what we're trying to do always striving for improvement and and frankly actually i don't think that's a particularly unusual outlook um, among lots of farmers in scotland Fantastic.
0: No, I I would hope that the majority of farmers in Scotland are are trying to balance the kind of um, the joint priorities of, yes, climate change and and yes, conservation, but also maintaining that level of productivity. So, no, good to to hear. I just wanted to get us kicked off obviously today we're going to be discussing beaver reintroduction into scotland and, and you'll be giving your perspective on that um but as a little bit of a disclaimer obviously both of us are in favor of seeing uh, a higher nature value across scotland in, in general and um, I, I don't think either one of us would uh, would disagree with that
1: no absolutely i mean personally i, I think that's great um although like a lot of these things there are you know observations probably to be made around that and and one of the ones i probably start off by saying is with a lot of these things you know there are rarely any right or wrong answers what you have is a series of choices each of which have consequences um and i, I, I suspect it's a topic that's been spoken about generally around and about that in many ways there is a disconnect between Large members of the numbers of the public and where their food comes from, and in many ways, actually, if you turn that on its head, arguably you could say that is one of farming successes. isn't it great that people by and large don't need to worry about where their next meals coming from? I mean that's terrific so in itself, there's nothing wrong with being ignorant I like that's probably quite a, a, an extreme word, but let's say lack of knowledge right up to the point. Where you start implementing policy without understanding the consequences, and that's really where you know you start having issues if policymakers seek to implement things without actually fully understanding where it's going to end up and so you know to, to widen that out slightly, I mean I suppose you know it, it, it's relatively well recognized that um, we've probably been through a phase of overly intensive production systems, Um, and I was about to say, you know, that were done in the past, and that that was just it. They were were for another time when priorities were different. But again, caveat that, I think it's important that we do still have the ability to return to those should we need to. So, um, I mean, so within that, it's this idea that it's not farmers on one side and society on the other, as though the farming industry has kind of undertaken some some great crime. Because certainly the way I look at it is that farming has done what was asked of it, either through policies from our you know, elected, elected officers or through the 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 buying patterns of, of our customers in the shop. So by and large, you know, within nature and farming, we can do whatever we're asked to do. So long as a there's a clear direction, but also, and we'll probably come back onto this, um, that the underlying enterprise has to be profitable. I mean, if you if you want to just summarize it as a sort of neat little phrase, you could say, you know, you can't be green if you're in the red.
0: Perfect. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I've heard that said by by multiple people within the industry as well, and I think it, it really hits home um, that that message. I have been uh, facilitating a uh, Farming for a Better Climate series recently, um, certainly over the, the winter period there. And um, overwhelmingly, farmers who have come to that to hear discussions around renewables and inorganic fertilizer use, the feedback we have had from them is we see the conservation story coming down the track. we want to be prepared for it. We want to know what's going to be asked of us so i th- I think that's really good. you've just kind of reiterated those those points. that's good um now you and i uh, I recently had Davy McCracken on the podcast, and we were discussing seagull management and mitigation um and I haven't lost my job yet, so I thought you know we'll we'll go with another contentious subject and we'll we'll give beavers a go but can you just outline what the current state of play is with regards to,
1: to beavers in Scotland? Um, well, in many ways, this is the easy part. Um, so currently, there are two main populations in Scotland. Uh, the first in in Napdale, and then the second bigger population throughout Tayside. So that's really throughout the the, the Tay network, and now moving into the fourth. Um However, the change that's happened within the last year is that whereas previously um, the, the population was to expand within its natural range, and we'll possibly come back and touch on that again, um, translocations have now been authorised out with those populated areas. So the latest that you've possibly seen in the press has been uh, Loch Lomond. And then some years ago, I think it was Scottish Wildlife Trust. Um, published a report identifying the potential for 100,000 hectares. I mean, I think that was sort of done as a sort of um, uh, a a headline and and a sort of rough guide, but in the Cairngorms National Park as being suitable for translocation. So I'd imagine that will probably be on the cards too. So in a summary... That's the situation. So Napdale, Tayside, moving into the fourth, but now translocation starting to occur out with those populated areas.
0: If I remember right, you and you and I first met each other at an NFUS meeting um, just at Loch Lomond, and it was um, just before the the translocation to the RSPB um, reserve there, and. Uh, I you know I I keep in touch with the the RSPB at Loch Lomond um I, I understand that they're having some difficulty now with the the reintroduction of them um but uh, but hopefully we can we can get to a point where it can work for for everybody
1: it would be good and again we'll probably touch on some of the some of the points around that I mean I think rarely are these things smooth um but like so many of these things it's the way it's done and the process and whether you take people with you, and again, this word we'll probably come back to, and whether it's imposed. And, and it's, it's, it's all of those dynamics operating, um, which really, if they, if they can be worked together, then you're going to have a much higher chance of success.
0: And Ewan, just before we get into the nitty-gritty of the the discussion, beavers have not been present in Scotland in any great number for for hundreds of years. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about some of the history of the reintroduction project that's been here in Scotland?
1: Well, this is where a conversation starts to become a little bit um, trickier. It's one of these things where you know we need to move forward. So we, I appreciate we can't always keep looking behind as to what's happened in the past, but I think it was Tony Blair or somebody like that that once made the observation: you have to start from where people are. You can't start from the point as to as to where you want them to get to. So, and why I say that is the word reintroduction, because of course. The only reintroduction has been napdale, but I'll, I'll come back on to that, that shortly, but you're quite right. So the, 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 the standard figure to do with um, when beavers became extinct in Scotland is 400 years, and that would seem to be the benchmark from which um, most uh, data and discussion takes place. But certainly when it comes to agriculture, I'd probably introduce a little. As I say, it's a complicator, but around the River Isla there are flood embankments which were constructed a long time ago. In fact, no one's entirely sure exactly when they were constructed. I mean, when I say no one, I mean you know us as the uh, as the local residents. But being constructed by monks, that gives you an idea as to how old they are. And I would suggest that it is probably almost inconceivable that beavers were tolerated in that area when they're trying to farm. So although 400 years might be the date of final extinction, the idea of conflict within agricultural areas, I suspect, is older than that. Now, getting into the timeline of the reintroductions part, Apart from a number of private collections, the, said the only reintroduction was as Napdale. And that was a 2009 trial uh, run by the Scottish Wildlife Trust. Um, and that was a well-organized and a structured trial. Um, there were some problems with it, but it, arguably that's one of the whole points about having a trial. They learned a lot from it. Now we move into the Tayside experience. and. I mean, whether they're escapees or illegal releases, SNH have indicated that the first reports they'd had were in 2006. Now, I'll just make a little interjection here because, you know, we, we start to talk about some quite contentious points here. You know, why I say it about, you know, beavers being released. Well, even on a personal level, I had a a, a visit from. Um, I suppose in those days, it was still Tayside Police, but wanting to take a statement from me because a beaver had turned up in Tentsmuir Forest. Now, for those not familiar with the geography around here, Tentsmuir is on the southern side of the Tay estuary, right at the eastern end on the North Sea. So I think even the police concluded that from the middle of Strathmore, it was pretty unlikely that a beaver had managed to swim all the way down Strathmore, past Schoon, round the corner past Perth, all the way out on the estuary to end up in Tensemere Forest. So, you know, we, we I think we've got to be realistic about some of the things that took place. And so I i don't make that comment as a sort of throwaway to, 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 to be contentious. As I said, we, we have to move on from where we, we were at. And the, you know, those things took place. However, so that was in in, in 2000, 2006. I first um, noticed beavers on my farm in 2008. And to be quite honest, I think there was quite a large amount of frustration at the time, um, that really very little seemed to be being done about it. And um, I, I had an email from SNH saying they were very sorry that the owner hadn't taken responsibility for it. Um, there were discussions around resources. RZSS, as a as a subscriber organisation, voluntarily tried to come and 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 recapture some of these animals. At one point, the point being on that, there didn't really seem to be a coordinated response. Now. Even at the time, we have a code of practice on non native species, which now I suspect some listeners might be going, well, beavers are formerly native, but that's the key point. Former natives, because of changes in land use, are considered non native. But despite all of that, in those, there was really very little was done. Then in 2010, a a decision actually was taken to remove. The Tayside population. Um, that decision was subsequently reversed. Uh, why was it reversed? I don't know. Um, I mean, it is a sensitive point, um, but you know, I'm looking at a, at a copy of the press release that that was done, and we'll, we'll possibly come back to that because it's it's got a couple of other points around it which are are, are prevalent for the the topics we're chatting about. Um, In 2012, a decision was then taken to run a survey which culminated the 2015 Scottish Beaver Report. Now, I mean, I know this all sounds, um, you know, a lot of dates and reports, but the progression is quite important. Um, Now, that 2015 report really laid the foundation in many ways for the future policy and direction as to what was going to happen to the Tayside population. If I'm being frank, I think there was a lot of disappointment about that report. I I won't use descriptive terms, but a, a, a report to compare it to, slightly confusingly, the River Otter in Devon. They also had a wild population there sometime after ours, but they published a report. So it's called the River Otter Beaver Report. Now, if you look at the River Otter Beaver Report in contrast to our 2015, they are two completely different styles of report. Um, Our one tended to be much more, um, I was going to use the word flowery, but um, much more high level and vague. As I said, that was used as the basis for future policy, in contrast to the Riverota Beaver Trial Report, which wasn't, which is much more detailed. Anyway, in 2018, um, ministers then indicated that they were minded uh, to 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 grant uh, European protected status to the beaver, which eventually happened in 2019. That was May 2019, which was the key trigger. At which point, they became a protected status along with a, a management framework, which more or less provides the basis as to as to how they're managed today. Now, a couple of other points to really sort of follow on from that was. And I I sort of indicated about the translocations. So in in 2016, um, recognising that the population had established itself in Tayside and actually how sensitive it had become, a joint letter was actually sent to the Scottish government from NFU Scotland, Scottish Land and Estates, uh, Scottish Wildlife Trust and RZSS, I have to get this right, Royal Zoological Society of Scotland. Um, Basically... um, acknowledging the presence of beavers in, in Tayside with an agreed set of mechanisms to lim, to live with them. But one of the, the things was that natural expansion of the populated territories uh, or within populated territories rather. And the announcement last year to translocate was purely a Scottish government decision. That that wasn't um, jointly coordinated with, with, with anyone else. So, that's, I suppose, really where we've got to. Um, certainly in Tayside, um, Tay, Tay is one of the longest rivers in Scotland. So just a point for everyone to know: it's more or less taken ten years for that network to be populated. So that sort of gives a, a, an idea of numbers and and spread. Um, and this is the point almost where, you know, we we start to move on to. One of the more difficult parts of the conversation. Um, I mean, earlier you said about you know still having your job after Davy McCracken was um, w- was on the podcast, and in some ways, you know, many a true word was spoken in jest. And with this topic, there are some difficult conversations, but I do think they need to be had because I do think that actually by Going through the issues that they raise, they do give us the best chance of arriving at a, a point of long-term success of, of of working out how we live with these animals and at the same time being able to continue to farm. And the 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 difficult topic. And again, this interesting enough. We you know here we are discussing beavers, and I, certainly when we we're across at Loch Lomond, I I remember us chatting about how you know this is one specific. Um, animal, but in many ways the issues are pertinent across different animal t- animal animals. Whether it's sea eagles, um, geese, badgers, all 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 of those, where you have a human animal conflict, and the unfortunate situation that started to take place in Tayside is that really we were sort of being bedevilled in a lot of the, the time through a lack of trust um, between official bodies and And many farmers. and I mean that that's that's quite a statement to make. Um, so, let me begin with there we were talking about the the recent experience on Loch Lomond. Well, I think it's been quite well covered in the Scottish farmer that um, we had public meetings around the proposed release into Loch Lomond, and the reports were that you know the individuals present, so presumably these were people who are going to be paying the bills, were not in favour, no funding has been guaranteed and the licence has been issued. Now, why that is important and beyond this case is that we've been assured that the Habitats Directive underpins this type of policy in Scotland. So I'm actually just going to read out A couple of bits around that because this is is quite important. Sure
0: yeah no problem at
1: all. So looking at a Scottish government policy statement it says assessing the need for beaver reintroduction has a legal basis the key legal driver has been the habitats directive. Now funnily enough I wouldn't suggest that people go and read the habitats directive but if they want to do it isn't actually that long the part that normally gets quoted is article 22 there are only 23 articles in it and this starts by saying member states shall study the desirability of reintroducing species in annex 4 uh, one of those is is beavers but the end of that paragraph says it takes place only after proper consultation with the public concerned. Now, to my mind, proper means meaningful. You don't just have the the discussion, and then move off and do what you want. And with the public concerned, to my mind, means the people that are going to suffer the impact, the people that are going to pay the bills. And going back to our 2015 report that we touched on earlier, A lot of data was published about that, around positive responses to the thought of having beavers in Scotland. Having well-meaning individuals contributing to these discussions from well outside the area when you're not going to be impacted, I don't think is within the spirit of what the directive is saying. And again, it's a fairly obvious point, but you're much more likely to be more idealistic the further away you are from, from the issue. And again, coming back to the River Otter beaver report, which again, we'll touch on again. A couple of times, it makes the point that certainly with beavers, that quite often the individuals that think they are benefiting are not the same as the ones paying the bill. So how do you square that circle? But getting back to the habitats directive, the very front page, the very front page has a section in it and this is particularly pertinent to Tayside and in particular Strathmore. So Strathmore, predominantly farming, arable, productive area. It says, whereas the main aim of this directive being to promote the maintenance of biodiversity, taking account of economic, social, cultural, and regional requirements. So by every one of those qualifiers, Why are they in Strathmore? Now, the fact is they are here, so we now need to move on. However, this is where you then get into a a point where if people feel that things like this are just bypassed and ignored, so the code of practice on non-native species bypassed, the precautionary principle didn't seem to be implied. This is where you can get into a feeling of uh, powerlessness. And powerlessness is a very powerful emotion. And, and I don't use it lightly because it can lead some very unpredictable outcomes. And so if we truly seek to find a way forward, it really needs to be addressed. Now, I'm going to quote one more section actually from a, a, a press release, because again, I think it's important that listeners understand, I make that point going back to what Tony Blair was saying, we've got to move forward, but it's important that, that, that listeners, I think, understand the environment that, that farmers have been operating within around this issue. So I'm going to bring out um, another press release. There are a couple of press releases. Um, And this was to do with um, when beavers, the intention was to recapture the Tayside population. So I'm looking at a press release, which is dated the 26th of November, 2010. And it says, beavers currently loose in parts of Tayside are to be recaptured. The decision follows agreement between members of the National Species Reintroduction Forum. And it then goes on to describe some of the reasons why that decision was taken. The next press release was on the 20th of December, 2010, because unsurprisingly that generated quite a lot of response, understandably. So what this one says is, we have produced this statement to clarify matters regarding our role in trapping beavers in Tayside. A number of beavers have either escaped or been deliberately released in Tayside. Unlicensed release of animals in an area where they would not ordinarily be found is an offence under the Wildlife and Countryside Act, which is why the police are involved. Again, further description around that, but there's a comment in here, we admire and respect the enthusiasm of people who are keen to see reintroductions of native animals to Scotland. The next side to that, and this is where it it does make things more difficult, but again, we're, we're moving forward, but it wasn't a great start. So, in 2016, in March, there was a Scottish beaver update. And this was issued by the Scottish Government. It said, the use of nature conservation orders are available to us and should evidence emerge that welfare concerns for beavers are being ignored, ignored sorry. we will look to use these powers to protect beavers in specific areas. Breach of a nature conservation order is a criminal offence. So the message, really, that went out was, from the first press releases, was, OK, you've, you, you, you've acknowledged that it was against the Countryside and Wildlife Act, but you shouldn't really have done it. Here's a slap on the wrist because you're admired and respected. Meanwhile, the people that are left to pick up the pieces and pay the bills are potential criminals. I mean, it's as, it's as black and white as that. Now, I'm sure that wasn't the intention of the update letter, but unfortunately, that is the legacy that we are now moving on from. So, the fact that we are moving on, and it was, it, it, it's, it's good, but that sort of gives an indication as to, as to where we are, as I said, progressing from. I probably haven't phrased that very well. Yeah, it, it's but, but that lack of trust and this concept that no one is listening is so important. And this ironic from having sound so negative, and this is where I'm hope we'll probably come back to a couple of points in the discussion, is where I really hope that unlike the experience with certain other animals, beavers, I think, are actually going to provide the key to moving beyond this. The concept of powerlessness and how we move on from that and why I think beavers are actually going to be a catalyst for seeing a way through this is that I should imagine that feeling of powerlessness. There will be guys across on the West Coast, men and women, who've had similar feelings of powerlessness where they've tried to describe what has been happening to their, to their lives because of seagulls, and this idea that no one's listening. Um, and some of that is because it is just the way it is. If it doesn't affect you, you're not by and large going to to be engaged in it. So you'll read in the paper about what's happening on the West Coast. Oh, how sad. What's on telly tonight? I mean, it can almost be as stark as that. We've all got other priorities. It It is the way it is. Because beavers are moving across into other highly populated areas, and because they are quite destructive, as we'll probably touch on, this is where I think we're going to get more engagement. As more people start to come and experience what they they do and don't do, at this point, we'll get engagement from a far wider range in the, of the, of the public. And we can then start to take the emotion out of the discussion, I said, and, and find that way forward. So, I'm sorry, there was a lot in that. And I said, you know, they are difficult conversations, but by being upfront, acknowledging they took place, and then finding a way through, this is how we're going to progress.
0: Ewan, what I really like in your response there, and, and don't worry, I appreciate that this is a huge topic and there's a lot to be said on it, but what I really love in your response there is that optimistic of, you know, the past has happened. Let's constructively move forward with that. Um so for my next question, I want to get an idea, Ewan. Obviously Beaver reintroduction and translocation in Scotland is going to bring about issues for farmers that we're going to have to get over. But could you just outline some of the positives that beavers bring to to Scotland? Obviously, I've heard it said that they're a keystone species before, and that they'll terraform um, a, a landscape, and and that that will bring a, a new richness to to the Scottish landscape. But can we just hear it from yourself? I mean, what what potential benefits do you see from having them here in Scotland?
1: I suppose, in many ways, that it it comes down to what you want to do with the land. And and this is where I've heard them described as policy drivers, because they force you to make a decision about what it is that you want to do. So, I mean, why I make that observation is that, certainly within Tayside and Strathmore, which is my experience, I have to admit, i'm I'm slightly struggling. Elsewhere where you've got different land types, completely different uh, environment. you know if you're after wetland, if you're after biodiversity, tremendous. If you're after producing food, then you've got a problem. And it is almost as binary as that. Um, you know wetlands and waterlogged soils cannot produce food. You can do other things with them, but it is, is that what you want? Now, looking on the sort of more positive side of things, you know, yes, there is a tourism benefit, um, re-engaging people with the countryside. And funnily enough, you know, I've got a, a, a bit of local education, getting youngsters fired up about wildlife um, because it's new. I mean, you know, um, red squirrels and so on, you know. They are all part of the natural environment because they're there already. It's quite hard to galvanize youngsters, whereas something new is great for capturing their attention. Um, but beyond wetlands, I'm slightly struggling as to as to as to what as to what benefits they've provided in in Tayside. And again, particularly you know, biodiversity. They're great for biodiversity, but it's wetland biodiversity. You know, they don't provide other Kinds of 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 biodiversity, and so within within. In fact, I'll be more specific within Strathmore, because obviously Tayside is a big area, and there are upland areas where the the the, the topography and so on is different. But but within Strathmore, it's a struggle to be to to, to be quite frank about it, um, and we'll we'll come on to more of the perhaps some of the other other positives later but you know we're now coming up to 15 years in um that the animals have been here and so you know perhaps you know it's almost worth having a little bit of a sort of balance sheet top up as to as to where we're at as to what wetlands we've got you know what biodiversity we've got but actually how much does it cost so um I mean, that that is probably oversimplifying it. And if you had somebody who was more familiar with beaver ecology, they could describe other benefits. But I suppose the bottom line is they are an aquatic animal. So whatever they bring has to have a fair amount of water involved in it. And it's a question as whether your land use is compatible with that or not. (laughs) <laughs> it sounds like I've completely dodged the question, but really that that, that is that is the nub um, and so by dint of that, I would suspect that you're going to find they they're more suitable in more upland areas than areas where you've got significant human to animal interaction. I mean, I mean, I mentioned that point about water. so much of our land use especially in agriculture revolves around lowering the water table in order to get productive use out of the land whether it's building houses whether it's whether it's farming and yet this is an animal that seeks to raise the water table so you, you have to find a way through that and you either slightly have this insane engagement whereby you you you're trying to manage this water table between you or you're probably better off Having them in areas where you don't have that human-animal conflict, which is probably what we'll we'll come back to later, later in our discussion. Yeah, do you know, Ewan, one of the things that strikes me is that
0: quite often when we're speaking to farmers about tree planting, we will hear the phrase the right tree in the right place. and, and what I'm kind of getting from you is the right beaver in the right place, if if that makes sense.
1: Yes, and there's 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 an th- Certainly, there's an element of that as a start point. Um, I mean, if, if I was going to be slightly flippant, in fact, I won't, because this is a, it, it's quite a serious topic we're discussing, but um, beavers move and trees don't. And, and this is something that we do, again, just need to be aware of. So even if you translocate into an area, so for instance, I mentioned about you know looking at areas within the Cairngorms National Park well certainly our experiences unfortunately beavers and us tend to like the same type of ground beavers tend not to be that keen on upland burns with plenty of rocks and all the rest of it we both like flat low lying ground with you know slow meandering watercourses that are that are constant so so yes but, but that doesn't um, get away from the general observation that you make that there are definitely areas where there are where they are more suitable but as i said i would just add the qualification that we it's not practical to think that we will just move them there and that's everything solved they do move um as an animal they are highly territorial um and so i mean that is part of the you know their rationale or the um result of their of their spread so quickly um is is that nature of them, I mean they, and when I say highly territorial, um, they are quite aggressive in that. Um, I mean, certainly, uh, I remember a uh, an SNH briefing about that, and I mean, I'd even go so far as to say, and again, it, it's 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 well known that beaver you know, mortality doesn't happen all the time, but it's not that unusual um, around territories. And again, it's not unusual to see scarring on bits of beavers because of territorial fights. Now, you know, that then comes up potentially as something we need to think about when they have no natural predators as adults, as kits they do. I mean, I think something's just, uh, I think just recently on Loch Lomond, um, I think press reports indicate that it's otters. Um, and I should imagine that that um, Nature Scott may have, have, have suggested that was the case, that had um, uh, had taken out a couple of the young kits. But as adults, there are no natural predators, so you're either going to peak out on population within an existing area, or this is where either the population spreads or you translocate. But even with that, you can only translocate for so long before again you'll 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 reach a fairly high population level. Um, Ewan, can I just get you to outline some of the
0: issues that you think beavers have caused in Tayside? Um, and beavers obviously cause dams. Everybody knows that. But is there any other function that they perform in the landscape that is um, destructive or, or or an issue for farmers?
1: So to... I suppose... That, that's, that's, there are three, no, four main things, I suppose. Um dams you've mentioned, which I'll come back to, because they're a very interesting um, area of their activity that I've tried to give some thought around. Um, They fell trees. I was going to say they eat crops. There's a combination, I suspect, of eating and a combination of lining their burrows and using the crops to um, help build their dams. just as an aside around that, if you if you look at a drone picture of where they've been into a field, it looks like a, a bit like a diagram of your lungs. Um, There's a central entry point into the field and they sort of feed out into all sorts of little um, sections down, down the side. Um, but then finally, and, and this is quite a a big topic from the point of view of moving into more populated areas, they burrow into embankments. Now, on the building of dams, Obviously, that blocks watercourses, it blocks ditches, you get erosion around soft earth banks, which certainly in some of the areas around here, you know, can be a real problem. Now, I've heard let's say, quite often a, a, a point will be made that um, beaver dams are great because they hold water in upland areas. And there was just something about that observation that that didn't seem quite right to me. So to describe a bit further, beavers build dams really in order to maintain a water level where there isn't sufficient uh, otherwise in periods of low rainfall. So why that's important is that the beavers don't allow their dams to drop by 50% allowing any spare capacity. The point being, the dam is already full before it starts raining. So this idea that the spare capacity up in the hills, I, I just I can't see it. I really struggle to see that. Um, also, those dams, that ground is permanently saturated. So you're going to further reduce the amount of ground that can hold water. The obvious analogy being if the sponge is wet, it can't hold any more water. And also, if the dam then breaks, which they do, then that water, which would previously have been downstream, will now join the spate water, along with all the associated debris. And and I'll just say, even leaky dams, they don't have this sort of um, graduated level of up and down. The, The point about a leaky dam is, it's just there's enough water flow that it doesn't have to plug all the holes. Now. So that sort of got me thinking around, but there's got to be more to it. So, so I can't get that headline view as being complete. Th- there is more to it. So, I can't. The, the key to me seems to be that what it does is it provides an obstacle in the water, so that it forces the water back out of the watercourse and into the surrounding area, whether it's woodlands or whether it's fields and all the rest of it. Now this I think is where, because when you're looking at um, quite a lot of work I think they did in the, the, the um, the River Otter trial, this is where you get the reduction in peak flow. So it isn't as though they hold water in upland areas, it's that peak flow reduction that these obstacles can have. But then I would argue that on that one you would actually be better off doing man-made structures where you can have the structure where you want it, but you wouldn't have it as a dam. You would put a structure in the water where the normal flow would go underneath whatever it is you put across the stream, and only when the water level is up will it hit that obstacle and then be diverted into out, out into the out into the, the the surrounding ground. But continuing around these ideas of. Um, of dams. The other key aspect to me seems to be um, gradient, whereby, obviously, in places like Strathmore, where the gradient is very shallow, you really don't need a big dam to affect a lot of farmland. And I've got a uh, a, a flat valve, which more or less clears sections of the A94 and a good 200 acres. Even if you put in a flow control device, either the water table is up by a meter, or it isn't. And that means the flat valve doesn't work. If you are in a steeply sided glen or area where you've got steep sides, I'm sorry, with rocky sides, because again, if they're soft earth sides, they're just going to erode out, you know, then something like that is going to be more suitable, where a dam's going to be built to maintain a level of water without affecting large amounts of arable land. And just to um, introduce uh, an observation from that River Otter Beaver Trial. Um, I'm just going to read out a section here from the report to do with low lying land. And it says, in low gradient intensively drained agricultural land, impact on land drainage can be locally significant. As shown in the case studies, it is possible to manage these impacts at relatively low capital cost. However, there may be an ongoing commitment of time, which can be significant. So again, it all comes back to it can be done, who pays and what do you want to do with the land, which is why it's just such an interesting topic as we discussed. So, And that point about when they arrive on your farm, you have to decide at that point. You can't keep having theoretical um, ideas around how you're going to interact or not. You're either going to farm the land or or you're not. A couple of other points around dams, which are just sort of worth bearing in mind, I think, is an observation which, again, is fairly prevalent about this idea that all you have to do is have a 30-metre buffer zone along the edge of your watercourse or your ditch and then everything else will be fine superficially again a little bit like the dams holding back water in upland areas it, it it superficially it sounds attractive until you understand about field drainage and this is a problem that we've had in some of the steering groups where you've had experts and i don't mean that disparagingly you've had experts in their field but they do not understand field drainage systems and if you've got low line gradients and field drainage systems that feed into a watercourse, many of our listeners might not be aware that actually the effects can spread hundreds of meters into that field. So it isn't as though the effects are only next to the watercourse. Another aspect could be, well, what you do is you provide a reservoir of water during periods of, of, of drought to which... I I think my own view is that we'd all be better off improving the soil organic matter across the whole field by about a percent. I mean I think the figure off the top of my head is 100,000 liters a hectare. I mean I mean that they are a lot. I mean that those figures do sound a little bit round for convenience, but they are a lot. So small dams are really not going to make much much of, much of a difference. One more aspect I just touched on around dams is Working around water is dangerous. And again, in that River Otter report, there's a great picture of one of their officers doing something that's called notching. Now, if you look at the picture in the report, he's all properly harnessed up. He's got a pin somewhere behind him. And, you know, we're talking today about my experience in Strathmore and the type of farm that I've got. And I indicate, you know, it's a sizable arable unit. As these animals spread, and you have single operator upland livestock men and women. I can just see they just don't have the time for this, and someone will cut a corner, and they're going to be working in the water, and it's it's not going to be a good place to be. So these are all things to think about um, around that. Um, felling trees, I would say it, it, it's fairly self-explanatory now. That sounds fairly dismissive. Why I say that is the official response is, it's entirely up to us. Whether you have a designed landscape or whether it's just trees at the side of the road, it is entirely up to you as the land manager to wire them off. there's there's no mitigation assistance for that. I mean, just on my farm, um, I think we we probably lost one of the last few elms in Angus, uh, which were which were ring barked and 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 died. So trees, yes, they're an issue. Sometimes they come down on roads, but um, and again, we haven't had too much experience of that near Forfar. But I think further up towards Blairgowrie, between there and Dunkeld, yes, it's it's more of an issue. Um the burrowing into embankments, this is one which it, it is important, and I think, that that we are aware um of a what happens and b how we've got to be on top of this one, because this is where you start to get the big ticket items. So when I say big ticket, um at the NFU Scotland AGM recently, um, the NFUS president Martin Kennedy. Um, described an incident whereby um, £50,000 was to be the bill for reinstating the bank. Now, when I went down to the AGM the second day, I wasn't able to get to the first one. Um, it was a, It's a great train drive. I don't often go on it, but you know, you're know you going along past the side of the fourth Clyde Canal. Now, I'd suggest that there are infrastructure bits in Scotland that are just not engineered to take lateral burrowing. And as the animals spread we've gotta be aware that this is the type of thing that's that's likely to happen. Um, Again, I mentioned about big ticket items. I think there was a piece also in the press covered about a landfill site being unearthed. I think it was Blairgowrie. I'm pretty sure it was the River Ericht. But, you know, figures are being bandied around in the millions of pounds to deal with that. So the point being, you know, these are fairly significant costs, which so now on the one hand, it it appears, oh gosh, you know, you're just putting out all these negatives. On the other hand, it's that type of thing that is, I think is going to galvanize the response that I'm hoping for to get this this consistency across how we interact with wildlife. If there was no consequence with these animals, it would all be rather cozy and fuzzy and nothing would happen. So in a way, the irony is, it's their very destructiveness, although it depends on your land use as to whether you think it's destructive or not. But it's their very, I was about to say, um, it's their very engineering expertise which I think is going to galvanise this response. Um, and so, you know, where should they be? Again, we touched on it a little earlier <laughs> around, uh, um, um, you know, right animal in the right place. I think, in some ways, you probably summarise by saying, in, in areas where water management is less critical and where it has less effect on on nearby land use, would I suppose be the, the 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 simple way of of trying to describe that, with the caveat that they move. So continuous management is 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 going to be the name of the game on that one. <laughs>
0: And you and you alluded to Napdale earlier on in the podcast. Um, I just wanted to get your your opinion. Have you been to Napdale yourself? Have you seen it? I mean, would you consider it to be an environment where beavers are perfectly suited? I mean, are there any concerns
1: there? Um, personally, I have to say I haven't been to Napdale. I would I would quite like to go actually. Um. I indicated earlier that it was a, it was a good trial, and I think it is. It's a properly structured, uh, well-researched, well-documented trial. Um, when we use the word better, again, I'm going to be a little bit sneaky and say, of course, that depends on what your definition of better is, which comes back to whatever it is you want to do with the land. But the point you make about Natdale as being an area more suitable for beavers Absolutely. You know, that sort of type of thing with those caveats that I, that I just mentioned earlier. Um, when you mention change, I would say that by and large, it, it is that. What you don't tend to get is uh, um, is countryside plus a few beavers. You get change countryside. I mean, <laughs> you know, there are obviously graduations of that. But uh, and, and I fully admit this is an extreme example. Um, So this was an article which appeared in a newspaper actually to do with the war in Ukraine. And it said, um, so I'll just read this section. Beavers have unwittingly enhanced Ukraine's defences against a possible Russian invasion from Belarus. Miles of thick mud, waterlogged fields and burst riverbanks have created a significant obstacle for any new front in the war. And that's down to Ukraine's animal allies building dams. So, as it, that is an extreme example, um, but it gets back to the point we make about you know where are they? Um, so, so Napdale is more I think of the type of, of of landscape that they're more suited to. I don't know enough about the trial as to what they do about. Um, as the population expands, I mean, I I've got a feeling. I think I'm writing saying there have been some issues around um, gene pool differences. I they aren't getting enough diversity in the pool. But again, these are all things. The whole point of having a trial, um, but around that, um, yes, it, it, that type of landscape is going to be is going to be more more important, suitable um, now. Again, getting back to somewhere like Strathmore, if you just say, and again, where you have these animals, prime agricultural land is generally defined within most of these types of, of publications as being what the Macaulay land use caused land types up to 3.1. Now, that only covers something like 13% of the landmass of Scotland. That's a Nature Scott figure. I would have said 10, but 13, maybe it's 15% even if it's 15%, that's still 85%, which isn't. So, you know, I mean, in a way, what we've ended up in is, you know, it, it, if you think that rule number one of a wildlife reintroduction project is not to do it in an area where you have maximum human-to-animal conflict, we've put them in just that type of area and taste side. But again, I get back to that point that I think that will probably galvanize us into arriving at a uh, what I would like to think is at arriving at a management policy quicker than they would otherwise. Um, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm slightly going off at a tangent here, and it was probably one of the points that I was going to bring at the end as one of these sort of flourishy points to sort of finish on. But you know, I really feel that if we get this right, We could have the best wildlife management set of policies on these islands by a country mile. Ironically, because we're being galvanized into doing it by what these animals are forcing us to to, to face up to what they can do, what they can't do. How much it's going to cost, who's it going to cost? Where are the benefits? Where aren't the benefits? Remember that observation I made earlier at some of you? policy drivers. I mean, in some ways, gosh, you know, it'd be better if they weren't here. But the fact is they are. So they're going to galvanise us into doing something.
0: And you and Scottish government have suggested in the past that they want to see transformational change within Scottish agriculture to deal with, yes, climate change, but also biodiversity decline. So just to round the podcast off, I want to get a sense of from you. what uh, What does transformational change mean to you? What could some of these policies be um, in a very practical sense on the ground, what kind of outcomes would you like to see to ensure that we can continue to have beavers here in Scotland and that we can minimise conflict with with farming?
1: Well, to begin with, the obvious one, as we've touched on um, earlier, uh, within sort of various points of our discussion, is in the right place. Um, There are areas where they are... Patently suitable, and there are areas where they they patently aren't. Um, if I was to have a wish list, you know, ideally I would like to see beavers removed from areas of highly productive land. Um, the Dutch have done so, um, I believe, um, because otherwise all you're going to end up in is is this endless cycle of of, of payments for no benefit, you know, you, you know, the sort of conflict in perpetuity, which. It's not a great place to, 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 to be. Um, you know, I would like to see a properly funded scheme for mitigations um, because that way, you know, we then get back to this sort of point where around this transformational change, it could be incentivized rather than imposed. A key point to that being is being realistic and Understanding what the consequences are, which goes almost right back to our the, the point we, we we touched on almost at the beginning, um, and trying to 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 I suppose tie up all the ends. I mean, part of that I dare say actually comes down to us as farmers to 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 get the points across to policymakers. Um, about how the consequences work, and both ways, because otherwise it's it's just us shouting at people, which isn't really helpful either way. Um, So not demonising agriculture, I think, is, is going to be quite a big part of that rebalancing. I mentioned before about the regenerative ag side of things. Again, there are all sorts of discussions around that as to whether or not you go for a a highly intensive type of farming and a small area of land to maximize your land production there to then leave the maximum amount for wildlife? Or do you slightly have a little bit of wildlife everywhere? I mean, one potential way around that would maybe be to look at um, transformational change on a catchment area rather than just being a, a an, individ, an individual farm thing. But what I would say around the regenerative thing is that, and it, it does come up with this, it gives you a little bit of a sort of warm, fuzzy feel, and it sounds great. But I do worry that it, it develops a momentum and a bandwagon effect that could end up forcing businesses down a route that they're really not ready for. Um, I mean, as we both know, you can't accelerate natural soil change. And, you know, Soil can't be turned on and off. And we've obviously optimised the soil here to grow plants that we can use. I mean, um, and again, it's an understandable um, observation for people to think that all you have to do is stick seed in the ground and it'll grow. What a lot of your listeners or our listeners might not realise is that, you know, we've had to alter the pH in a lot of these soils to get it within a band that we can grow these plants. Now, this all takes time. And it all comes back again to that choices and consequences. So within within all of those, that's what I see transformational change. I see it as being incentivized um, rather, than, rather than imposed. But within that, you know, I'm actually quite excited. I mean, farming can do that. It can do the food production. It can do the climate change. It can do the biodiversity. But with that underlying, it has to be profitable. It comes back to that. You can't be green if you're in the red. So we can do it, but just give us time. Give us the incentives. And I I say incentives because otherwise it just sounds, well, we'll only do it if you you pay us sort of type of thing. And it sounds again, oh, well, here's the farmers wanting more money. We have changes to undertake, which will take time. Um, And without that underpinned profitability, it just won't happen. Um, I mean, as as a background point to do with things like net zero, I do think there has to be an element of realism whereby as all sectors decarbonize, and this is just my personal view, um, I can't see agriculture not remaining a significant percentage of whatever percentages we end up in, simply because apart from reproduction it is the only essential activity that we have to undertake as a species is nutrition so it is so the energy that we use to feed ourselves i think is probably always going to feature there somewhere that isn't to say that we cannot improve and decarbonize but i think we've we've got to have a, 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 a an element of realism in there with that as to as to what can be practically done
0: Brilliant. No, I couldn't agree more. Ewan, this this has been a really good discussion. Um, conscious of your time this afternoon, um, I was going to bring the podcast to a close, but uh, do you have any final thoughts? I mean, how, how do people get in touch with yourself? How do people engage with you? And is there anybody that people should be speaking to or reaching out to with regards to issues with beavers?
1: Well, I suppose really, obviously, Nature, Scott, are the um, overarching um, authority around this. Um, I mean, possibly another contentious point this close to the end of the podcast, which might not be helpful. But um, going right back to some of our earlier discussions, I mean, unfortunately, you know, we've, we're quite late in the day where we are now getting other groups like ARPID. So for, for for our listeners, that's the what you'd think of as the Ag Department, SEPA, some of the other um, government bodies involved. It's very much been siloed for the last 10 years or so, really, with, with Nature NatureScot and its predecessor, SNH, which has created problems in trying to get that balance of expertise across the whole gamut as to what they're going to do. Because as we've touched on, they're not just going to affect farmers, but but that is improving. But in in the first instance, Nature Scott. And, and they will, you know, this is where you, the, the sort of discussions around um, mitigations and that sort of type of thing. Although certainly at the moment, um, f- funding, I think, for mitigations, it's opaque. You know, we're we're not really there yet, certainly as the guys in Loch Lomond have discovered. There's not a lot that's very well defined about what is there to help people. But that's the situation today, and I think that will improve. Um, Other organisations, I think there are really only two others. Um, For farmers, um, NFU Scotland uh, would be the 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 organization to go to and for those with sort of wider land interests maybe more upland not necessary agriculture would be scottish land and estates um would be the sort of two um uh, lobby organizations but with a source of expertise and again experience um as to what's gone on before and be able to sort of point to the the, the practicalities around uh, what what might be available um and probably best really if people wanted to get in touch with me would either be through um, NFUS, NFU Scotland, or or just write to me at mains of Canettles. I, I'm not a great social media user, unfortunately. So, uh, so 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 snail mail, or if you uh, said if for, for electronic um, through NFU Scotland, I uh, said because that is the the organisation which I've, I'm sort of you know officially a a, a post holder in.
0: Brilliant. Well, Ewan, on behalf of the Farm Advisory Service, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. It's been a really good discussion and uh, hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast. As you said, this is a huge topic and I'm sure there's more to be said.
1: And thanks very much for having me on. Very kind.
0: Thank you very much, Ewan. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Thrill of the Hill. If you enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and follow this podcast. Leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find all our details at the bottom of our show notes below. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.